0: And she cut her leg on a on a tree stump. Um, and I came running over and she was like upset, annoyed, a little bit teary. But I thought nothing serious of it. And then I saw that the blood was coming out the zip of her wingsuit. And I thought, well, this at this point, this could potentially be like an open fracture or something. And she looked back yeah. up. I said, look back up at the mountain. Do not look at your leg right now because this could be pretty full on.
1: Welcome to The Freedom Project, a podcast for those who crave adventure with every fiber of their body. I'm on a mission to bring you absolute freedom. Yes, freedom to do what you want when you want to, but also freedom from your own limitations. In this podcast, I'm going to be exploring what it takes to live a life full of adventure and freedom. I'll be interviewing adventurers, explorers, and business owners who have set their life up to have an abundance of choice. And I'm also gonna give you the high performance tips and tricks I teach my entrepreneur clients to have the kind of life they want and be the type of person they wish they were. So if you're not already, subscribe to the show and settle in for another episode of the Freedom Project. Tim Howell is a base jumper, alpinist and former Royal Marines commando. Tim was the first person in the world to climb and then base jump all six of the great North faces of the Alps and the first Brit to ski base jump. And in this podcast, we discuss Tim's key lessons from over a thousand base jumps, how to dispel fear, why luck doesn't play a role in his safety, Tim's best failure, the highs and lows of base jumping, and pursuing freedom, and lots more besides. I feel like in this hour-long conversation, you really get to know what makes Tim tick. And also, there's a ton that you can apply to your life, and your pursuit of freedom and adventure. And actually, I'm always impressed when someone counters that daredevil stereotype by providing very logical explanations and well-thought-out explanations of why he does what he does. So here is the wonderful Tim Howe. So man, let's start with um, an interesting question. Where did you meet your wife? So
0: I, I just finished a long deployment in the Royal Marines and I had two months leave. So I thought this is a perfect time to, to get really um, current in wingsuiting and skydiving. And then from the drop zone, I can take it straight to, the, uh, to Monte Brento to, to take my wingsuit off the cliff for the first time. So during this, uh, this training, um, I was in a, a drop zone in Madrid and my wife worked as a, a wingsuit instructor at the weekends. And she had been told that there's a stupid Englishman leaving the plane and inflating his wingsuit, nearly hitting the hitting the tail of the plane with his head. So she was the first person to to run over and debrief me. Uh, I suppose it was a nice way of saying it. Saying, "Yeah, you nearly took down the plane." So <laughs> yeah, that, that's how we met. And then we uh, we continued meeting each other. Um, in the mountains, whether it was Italy or Switzerland, and continuing our our passion for for base jumping at the weekends.
1: So is the base and wing community very tight-knit?
0: Yeah, I I would say it is. Um, And my example always is, no matter where I go in the world or no matter what sort of adventure I've I've got my eye on, um, I can always reach out and there'll always be people who could jump with me in whatever country in the world, some really random places, um, or there's always people willing to give me information.
1: Yeah. So I was doing a little bit of research into, into you and to for this conversation. And did I get it right that there's an interesting story around when you proposed to her?
0: Yeah, that was... Uh- <laughs>
1: Yeah, Eva still says that
0: was the uh, the best holiday she's ever been on, but it, it ended up with her being in in surgery for a couple of hours and a night in the hospital. So,
1: yeah, what happened? Yeah, it was pretty
0: pretty full on. Um, so it was a trip to to South Africa, and we ended up in on Table Mountain, where we both geared up in our wingsuits. I proposed, and we both flew away from the cliff doing a two way, and I saw uh that we weren't making as much forward um progression height high glide to reach the, the landing areas I thought we would. So Eva pulled a parachute, she had line twists, uh and she landed downwind in this little scrub area that we hadn't really thought we were gonna land on, so we didn't check it. Mm-hmm. And she cut her leg on a on a tree stump. Um and I came running over and she was like upset, annoyed, a little bit teary, but I thought nothing serious of it. And then I saw that the blood was coming out the zip of her wingsuit. And I thought, well, this, at this point, this could potentially be like an open fracture or something. Cause I did, didn't see her land pretty, pretty hard. She acted as my windsock as well. I landed the opposite direction. Perfect landing. Um,
1: <laughs> and, uh, good future wife. Good future. Yeah, exactly.
0: Cheers, hon. <laughs> And she looked back up. I said, look back up at the mountain. Do not look at your leg right now because this could be pretty full on. And I unzipped it. And uh, the flatter skin on her shin, pretty much like the size of my hand, just fell away from the bone. And it wasn't an open fracture, which was was a huge relief. Um, And she wasn't bleeding that much at all. So I bandaged it up with strips from my shirt. And because she wasn't in that much pain and because she wasn't bleeding out and she was happy to to try and get to the car of her own accord, we spent the next two hours lifting and shifting back to the car. <laughs> and then uh yeah, got, got to A and E. And um yeah, some pretty serious plastic surgery and, and some pretty good scrubbing of the wound later because there was some yeah, all sorts in there. Dirt, grit, bits of sand and
1: yeah i bet makes my proposal look very tame <laughs> i thought i thought it was cool revelstoke skiing no, no. backcountry all that kind of but stuff, but no like, accidents you, yeah you you yeah. no uh, accidents it's probably the, the way we'd both prefer it, exactly like i don't tame. think
0: it's uh yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not the one to go no. for uh, so obviously previous life experiences prepped you pretty well for that let's like if we can we'll lead up to that but like talk to about where you grew up and like what kind of kid you were
0: yeah i i grew up um in the south in uh, of of england always around the coast but um really grew up uh near portsmouth and then moved to like somerset and dorset um in my later teens and um yeah my my dad was an ex paratrooper so i think i had a pretty strict upbringing and always kind of pushed me um to the to the point as well where i was he really helped me understand risk and what I was capable of, but also having that trust in my abilities. He had that trust, which I then think um pushed me to be able to trust my own abilities um, so yeah, it was. Definitely the upbringing that led me to, to where I am now.
1: What kind of stuff were you getting up to with them?
0: Uh, so I remember one example where there was we had a, a, ch- a farmhouse, which was three stories high, and there was scaffolding on each chimney. And I don't know how it came about, whether my dad decided I could do it or I could, but he was fine with me climbing up the scaffolding and then walking across the apex of the roof from one scaffolding to the other. And I think I was probably about 13 or something. Mum was away at the time. I don't think it would have happened if she was about. But um, yeah, just things like that. Things like, you know, the the consequences are really, really high. But if you're sure that you can do it, and it it, it is doable, like you can walk across a pavement without falling off. So why could you not do that? three stories high mm-hmm. so it's yeah
1: good role model did you have any other role models in early life
0: um no i, I don't think i really did and and i i look up to certain people and i uh, and and i'm a very reluctant to use the word inspire um because you only, unless you know people really really well you only get to see a certain part of their life so certain acts that people do inspire me for sure. Um, I remember watching Shane McConkie because I, I used to ski a lot and he was definitely an inspiration uh, but I, I use that word very rarely.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah that's an interesting turn of events and like the full circuit of the mm. and, and having like yeah yeah we'll, we'll we'll fill that loop in eventually but like what when did you first when did you first start um getting involved in climbing involved in the mountains like what was that journey like
0: yeah so i i'd never really had a mentor for climbing or never did any courses and for me i much prefer that sort of avenue um learning as you go along Learning of friends, going full in depth on forums and you know being immersed in the community and I, th- I feel like that's a really good way of learning for for certain sports i would, i would I would say um so I started climbing probably when I was fourteen fifteen, and to be honest back then, you know all these things that I've done since i I genuinely would never have thought I'd be able to achieve I never thought. Uh, I went to Pakistan this this year and I never thought I'd be climbing 6,000 meter peaks in Pakistan on a self-organized and um, self-funded trip, you know. So all of those things along the way, climbing the north face of the Iger or or even going to Chamonix for the first time and climbing the most basic of routes, you know, each one, each stage of, of my climbing career, I thought that would, I would never have thought that would happen all those years ago.
1: Mm. that's the kind of joy of the adventure isn't it like what feels like a massive adventure to begin with for sure top roping something that's like look back at it and it's pretty simple it feels like a massive adventure and then you just you push it three percent and then you push it another couple of percent and then like you're doing things you're thinking this is really cool shit but it's just more of it down the line yeah
0: and i and i always say no matter what it is is each little adventure or each as you say each time you push it by three percent it's a stepping stone to the next one and the next one and the next one it's all those skills and techniques and, and experience that helps you push it to that next stage
1: have there been times when you've made the mistake of not pushing three percent and pushed 300 percent and gone way too far um with
0: climbing i wouldn't say so uh with base jumping in the, in the early days, there was one incident that I'd say, yeah, I pushed it because with skiing, you know, back when I was skiing or, you know, in my early years of skiing and climbing, um, and mountain biking, I think you can push it because maybe you're going to end up with broken collarbone or concussion. Um, but with base jumping, you, you can't push it in the same way. Um, so I, I was lucky enough, well I wouldn't say I've got a lot to say about luck, but I was fortunate enough mm-hmm. that I was able to walk away from that without any injuries, learnt from it, and realized I cannot push this sport the same way that I'm pushing yeah, what it. What happened? So I decided to do an aerial, like a somersault off a cliff, uh, without being competent in that maneuver at all. Um and yeah, it ended badly. I, I I hit the cliff under canopy, but managed to turn it around and, and land. Um, but the, the canopy had a hole, in it so big, I could I could crawl
1: through it. So it was, yeah, it ended all right. Geez, so you you land what somewhat safely,
0: um, quite hard on uh on the pebbles below. Okay. Unfortunately, there there were pebbles, you know, and and pebbles I think is, is, can be better to land on than sand because sands can be so dense because there's no gaps. Mm. But when you land on pebbles, it all sorts of dis- disperses, and it and it can be quite uh, forgiving to land on.
1: Yeah. So you have <laughs> you have forgiving landing on stones, yeah. and you <laughs> think like, what are you, what are you thinking to yourself
0: as, as it was happening?
1: Yeah, like afterwards, when you kind of yeah, you, afterwards, I'm sure. When, whilst it's happening, it's kind of like shit. Yeah, the fan. I've got my processes and it. like switched on, but then afterwards, like what?
0: Super annoyed with myself. Just. Because I, I remember when I was mountain biking, I, was, I used to do a lot of free ride, So drops and road gaps and things like that. And I always used to think use pressure to fuel your motives. So it would be getting friends and getting hyped up and psyched. Yeah, let's go for it. But that is completely the opposite of what you want for, for base jumping. You know, it needs to be 100% calm um just react to anything that happens as opposed to having your head just filled with with adrenaline and and noise and and rage so yeah I was just super annoyed with myself that I let that happen in this sort of um risky and unforgiving environment um but I, uh, I picked up the phone and bought a new canopy that afternoon a new parachute and uh was off to to Europe for a month of base jumping. So
1: get back on the horse. Is that because you just had to get back on the horse and just like you know that it's going to become a thing if you don't get back not, on
0: Not not so much. Um I mean I do agree with with that idea that you should get back on the horse, and that was the same for Eva after her wingsuit accident. Three months later she was back flying again. Um but it was no, it was just an incident. I knew um how to improve it and I was gonna continue.
1: So I want to come to this later, but seeing as you brought it up, I'm like, we're going to jump in. You spoke about that calmness. How do you find that state?
0: So for me, finding that calmness, um, <clears throat> is through, so there is a great, um, great military saying, um, uh, knowledge dispels fear. Um, and if you, if if you understand what everything involves and you understand the procedures, and the protocols and you understand your own ability and skills, then, then everything should go as planned. You know, everything um, should go as it is. And and I almost have a tick list. Like, am I capable of doing this jump? Do the numbers add up? Have I pat my parachute correctly? And if if I've done everything I can do to mitigate the risk, then am I going to do it or not? Like, And if I'm going to do it, then I Mars will be in the understanding that everything's uh, going to go well, and if it doesn't, I can react to it with a calm mind.
1: Nice. With that knowledge, dispels fear. What, like, what's your? Is there a, is there a Dunning Kruger effect of like do you think you? like the arrogance like, really picks up because like I can, I can point back to like me being that, the like going into avalanche train in the first couple of years of being like being in the mountains. And like I took now what I know as stupid risks, but didn't, but thought I was safe because everything had been fine yeah. until then. Like what's that like in, in the
0: world I, I use the Dunning-Kruger effect, the graph quite a bit when I, when I teach bass and for me that peak happens at almost almost everyone I know who's had a serious incident three years. It happened for me at three years with that example of hitting the Mm -hmm. cliff. Um, And it happened to a lot of my friends at three years where you've, you've survived three years without any real incident. So you're like, I'm invincible. You've got three years of experience uh, where three years is actually nothing. And then something happens, you push it too far. And then if you continue base jumping, you start to plateau. And you gain the experience, but you're not going to take any more risk than necessary. And that's finding that line is is where you need to be.
1: What do you watch out for to to know that you're kind of you're in the danger zone?
0: Um, that's yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think knowing myself in high risk environments. I I can pick up on, on certain things of of whether I'm comfortable in that situation or not. Uh, and I'm not saying like every jump is is just a walk in a park. There are some jumps I'm standing at the edge and it's a new jump, you know, that has never been done before. That's potentially quite technical. Um, and I just need to reassess everything. I need to think, have I done all my calculations? Have I, you know, is is everything the way it should be? Have I packed my rig? And, and once i've done all that then i should be able to to um to carry it out with more well with the utmost confidence
1: do you have a system for from the moment you pack your canopy to the moment you land
0: a system is in like
1: step by step to either get you in the right headspace or to to ensure that you've like i'm sure there's like sops Mm. like this is how you pack like this is how you like you go through this process but like actually the more i think the more interesting point is like you're standing at the top of the jump like what's your system for getting in that headspace? Like the checks you go through, the visualizations you go through, is there any calming effects? Is there like a micro meditation Mm. up there?
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes, I I mean, I don't do this anymore, I would say, because after a thousand plus jumps, I've I've really started to do it naturally, I suppose. But there'll be times where maybe my friend has a bad exit or something, and I'm just like, oh, my heart rate goes up. Yeah, he's absolutely fine, but it's still a little bit of realization that things can go wrong, and my heart rate goes, and and I just do like box breathing, um, just to like really bring it back down, refocus, and and go again.
1: Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. So to jump all over the place, you grew up in the South Coast, then you went to was it guiding in africa yeah i lived in south africa for two years what 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 takes you there
0: um my mum was a a purser for british airways so cabin crew um and the family had always loved south africa and my, my dad lived in i think kenya for a few years in the military so it was always a place that was that was yeah always brought us back hence why i proposed there as well but um, it's it was an amazing amazing place. There's there's risk and there's there's adventure to be had. So I decided it was a it was a good place to spend a couple of years after after my uh, A
1: levels. Nice. And then, what do you get from that experience? Like, what does that teach you? So
0: I, I really didn't know at that point where my life was going in terms of like career. It was it was a great two years to to figure out where I wanted to to continue um this avenue of, of taking risk and like mitigating it and being independent. Uh, and eventually obviously that, that led to being in the Royal Marines. But it was yeah, I mean being that young in a real hazardous environment, you know, I was 19 with a 475 rifle, no, four four five eight. Um taking clients amongst elephants and rhinos and buffaloes and lions and stuff. So it was yeah, it was it was pretty full on. And I think that really, really helped me um being being that young, um, for
1: confidence and and everything really. Yeah, I bet. What's the training like to put you in a position mm. where you were competent enough to Yeah, so to it was die? it was a
0: six month um course um so everything from survival weapon handling vehicle um obviously everything to do with the the animals and learning the ins and outs and um but yeah it was it was an amazing amazing course and then i was fortunate enough to get a really good position in um sabi sands which is a private part of the kruger park and that's where i um did a couple of years of guiding
1: nice and then you end up like, well, coming home, is the Royal Marines always...
0: It, it in wasn't plan? initially, but looking back, I kind of realised it was inevitable. Um, well, inevitable joining the military as it, as it is. Uh, mm-hmm. And, yeah, there were a few things that kind of finished my time in South Africa. Like, uh, Jacob Zuma just came into power, so made it harder to renew the visas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recession hit in the UK or Europe, and um, getting tips from the clients were a lot harder or a lot smaller so uh, th- that made things different and um, had a colleague of mine who decided to shoot his wife and then try and find me and then shot himself and I all th- thought yeah it's uh, probably time to to go home and then I, I knew my dad would be like you know, well what are you doing for work what's your career choice so I was like the marines
1: I'll join the Marines so Obvious question. Was there some conflict with your dad's <laughs> I and, mean and she decided
0: to Yeah, no, my my uncle was actually in the Marines. Um and I knew that if I was going to join the army, I'd I'd try and go down the officer route. Um, mm-hmm. but I I would rather have joined the Mar- And there was no conflict. To answer your question, there, there was none at all. To the to the fact that I, I got my dad a maroon-coloured t-shirt that said Something like God was a para because he failed the bootnet course, so, and, he, and he wears that. He wears that. So.
1: Nice, good, good stuff. So, you, you, like training, what was what was training like? Because that's quite a lot of. I suppose you've been through a six months of training to become a guide. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing pretty different to being down at Limston. um and you're also like going from quite a lot of freedom and self expression if you're climbing or kind of. Become out. It's outdoorsy, mm. definitely. But having that, um yeah, the freedom to do what you want when you want. I'm guessing is pretty high to go to, like eight and a half months down Limpston. What's that? The what's the shock of capture like for you?
0: Um, it was. To be honest, between my dad, my dad uh bringing me up as a child, there were there were a lot of similarities of how I had to fold clothes yeah. and clean shoes and. There wasn't much shock of capture, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is probably the part Fit of me in. saying why it was inevitable because a lot of my childhood had a uh, similarities.
1: Okay. So training wasn't so bad. Then. It
0: wasn't. Um, I okay. I'm, I'm proud in saying I was an original, but for me, mm-hmm. if you're even slightly switched on and you just crack on, with the exercises with the fizz and do not give up you're going to pass so and that's that's always what i've what i felt and why i joined because i was like i i will pass it's it's a given as long as i don't you know put my foot in the cattle grid and break my leg or something then i will just carry on and and it will be yeah it'll be done
1: there's definitely some truth there. a little bit of luck in there
0: no so so Um, which i think yeah so a a situation where you could say is luck is friends of mine who who put his leg in a cattle grid and broke it or a friend of mine in a speed march who who uh was in the speed march um there was a branch across the road he missed it tripped over fell broke his leg he he didn't pass out with us that to me isn't unlucky. That's you not being switched on enough. Like everyone else missed that. Mm-hmm. Out of thirty blokes, everyone else didn't do that. So where everyone else maybe has a fraction more uh, energy, foresight, um, strength, mental aptitude, whatever it is, maybe they're a slightly bit more awake than you. <laughs> whatever it is, mm-hmm. they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. So that to me is just yeah, yeah, part of the game. You you didn't uh, you didn't manage to they have the same level as everyone else yeah that's me being mean um, but that's how
1: i see it no 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 i'm i'm with you and there's there's this guy um who went down did my commando course with and he um he he was the lightest man to like ever (laughs) like ever go through that course i swear um but he also like you could see the fear when we went to do Tars and assault course and went to the old death slide and he got his rope and just forgot to Mm. wet it on the way through, jumped off and just stuck (laughs) and hung and hung and hung. And he was there. And then obviously training team were like, okay, trying, trying to get him. Like, what do you do in that situation? But he starts bouncing down. (laughs) He trying to like get himself down because time has started this one shot and we reserve us as well so it's like it's like i've got this opportunity yeah. i have to do it now i just have to wait another year and he fell smashed his scapula and like actually bent the barrel of his rifle around his spine which is so lucky um wow. but yeah like that is the like you could say it's luck he was super light <laughs> he like he had a ridiculous 5k time um super fit very switched on bloke for the rest of it but, like you see, the the fear got the the, mm. the better of him. And lovely bloke, like completely like genuine good guy. Um, but yeah, the the luck, the decisions you make—that's
0: uh, yeah, it around. is. I, I just think people use the phrase "luck" without, re- and it's like obviously fine. I just like to look into things a bit deeper when people say things. Mm. And it's yeah, there's there's a lot of situations where people can use that phrase, or actually, it's not. Um, and and it happens a lot with, with uh, base jumping. I think I, I cannot think of a situation uh, of an incident where somebody ends up hurting themselves or even a fatality where it has not come down to personal decision-making. And if it comes down to decision-making, then it's not luck anymore because you decided to do it or not, whether that's misrigging or doing something out of your ability or whatever it is. Is
1: decision making. Yeah, I was speaking to. Do you know Andy? Talbot?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. Well, I, I don't know him personally, okay. but we chat. Cave diver.
1: Yeah, he was talking about. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. Okay. So we were talking. Um, I was talking to him on the podcast a couple of weeks back, and he was talking about mm. cave diving, and he said he loves it because success is completely binary, and it's entirely down to the decisions you make. There's so few outside factors. It's just did you mm. plan it correctly? Love it. Did you go through your systems? And I'm sure there's more variables when you're kind of outside of water and you're in a kind of less mm. controlled environment. But still, like
0: yeah, it's great. Love it. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah.
1: So, was the decision to go down the mountain leader path was that as inevitable as uh as joining the Marines in the first place or joining the military?
0: yeah maybe. Um... Yeah, I can't actually think of when I first thought about it. I, I think I was always aware about the mountain leader branch. Um, but it's the type of thing that you say to the, um, the careers advisor, and they go, oh, yeah, sure, mate. Like, yeah, come back to me in five years' time or whatever. But, yeah, I, I got the opportunity after Afghan to, to join the branch, and uh, I passed the past the like one week course or whatever it was to, to to start the training and by then I'd actually been pinged to be a clerk and uh I just didn't turn up and it, I think it was probably the first time in the marines where I kind of like stood up for myself and said I'm not doing that you know I'm not going on that clerk's course if I've got this ambition to be an ml and I'm sure my life would have been very very different because I would not have stayed in in you know, a Clark branch for more more than I, I had to. Yeah. So, um,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So we should probably give a quick definition of mountain leaders for mm. the audience.
0: Um, so it's, it's also called uh, Cliff Assault, um, or as part of the job of a mountain leader. And a mountain leader, the course, is, is very tough. I definitely found it challenging. Um, and we, we often join... Rec- recce troops so it's a reconnaissance role and it's probably uh one of the few roles or few branches in the marines where you can continue being what we call a green soldier you know you continue soldiering with your rifle you're not driving you're not being a clerk or a drill instructor or a chef or whatever it's one of the few roles where you're still you know being on the ground and uh yeah being a soldier so it's it's definitely something that I continue. I, I wanted to carry on being being a soldier.
1: Just a quick favour to ask. If you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show. It reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. So it was the the actual soldiering duty. Um, And I suppose you have, you could go, like, if you wanted to continue soldiering, you could go down the special Mm. forces route as well. But there was obviously something about the mountain leaders in particular that you're like, okay, that's that's engaging. I'm assuming the kind of the obvious thing that it's mountains and cliffs. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, most of the ML branch don't like climbing. It's just uh, an opportunity for them to carry on being a soldier. But for me, I had so much interest still outside of the core in terms of base jumping and sky. Well, not skydiving at that point, but base jumping and climbing and mountaineering that SF was never really a world that I wanted to join. You know, I've taught, um quite a few friends of mine are SF'd had to base jump and some of them managed to to meet me every now and again for a climb. But you know, that that's their world. That's that's their life, is uh is is the F- SF world. And um you know, even even throughout training where we'd get a long weekend <clears throat> and lads would be, you know, making the most of relaxing with their with their girlfriends or whatever, I'd I would be on a flight to Italy and um climbing up big walls. So it was. It was always. Uh, I always wanted my spare time, my free time, to carry out my goals and, and ambitions, which is ultimately why why I left the Marines.
1: Yeah, that's that's quite interesting because the the phrase that you'll have heard a ton of times, but kind of civilians won't have heard as as often as the idea of being corpus, where people are just obsessed with their aspect in the military or in this particular case the marines and like that the whole life revolves Mm. around it but you also wanted that distinction you had that um difference between you and the military
0: yeah i I did um it wasn't it wasn't to be not corpus i mean i wasn't corpus i didn't didn't have uh you know t-shirts at the weekend or my my room covered in flags or whatever, but it was, it was more just like, you know, I had bigger things going, going on as well. You know, I, I've always thought that I'd do something in the, in the Marines, such as passing out, you know, doing my 36, 32 weeks of training. And, and then that would be the hardest thing in my life. And then I'd go climb the North face of the Iger and that would be the hardest thing. And then, so it was to and fro, between my military career and what I was doing as a civilian, you know, they weren't, they weren't on, on par with, with how hard I was pushing myself, whether it's mentally or, or physically. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was just a different, different type of um, technical ability and, and, you know, hardship that I was putting my, myself through, whether it was, you know, in my own time or for
1: work and talking about hardship what's what's the ml course like? so uh
0: we were on an ml3 course and we shadowed the ml2 course uh so we did the exact well pretty much the exact same as them without the the, the leadership part of it so we would follow them for three months doing the same exercises um, so like the mountain phase in Scotland was just ridiculously long yomps every day with ridiculously heavy bergens and then up all night planning the route for the next day. And that carried on for about a month or something. Then there was the the climbing phase down in in Cornwall. Um, for me, that was pretty simple. Um, we were getting lectures from some of the corporals and I'd be tucking away at the back saying, that's wrong mate you're talking rubbish um but it was it was it's a different type of climbing you know it, it's combat climbing with boots and stuff and it's just but the, the climbing I felt relatively simple and and pretty
1: that must give you such an advantage sure. to be able to not switch off but to have like yeah a,
0: a yeah not mile. not be worried about the climb the yeah, next okay. day and and stuff like that I was just like mm. yeah I know it's mm. going to be fine um And then a month in Dartmoor, which was the, the OP phase, um, which was, yeah, pretty much being holed up in a dirty trench in the pouring rain for weeks and days and days and days. And it was, yeah, it was very, um, what's the right word for it? It was, it was abysmal. It was horrendously wet and tiring and (laughs) yeah. I th- I think we most of us remember sounds remember that just Some, yeah. just being in a wet hole like nothing is dry and you're there for up to a week mm-hmm.
1: and it was mm-hmm. yeah it was rubbish yeah yeah that sounds disgusting but it's it's the same conversation I seem to have with everyone it's like the things that stand out whether it's in the mountains or whether it's um or whether it's in training or any parts of your life like the punctuation of the terrible moments and how you coped with that that's what seems to to stand out like, like this is this time where I was stuck on glacier and like crevasses in a lot of places and big avalanche went off. uh Like it's probably two hundred meters away from us the the edge of the avalanche. We're like, oh shit! And we're currently going up and all roped up at the same time. And I was just on frame bindings at the time. And my frame and we're like, we need to get down here right now. We need to get off this. We need to figure it out. And. <laughs> my frame bindings got completely clumped up the snow completely stuck and the only way that i could like melt that <laughs> was just to piss on them so there's this avalanche that happened down there um it was freezing cold like we didn't really know about that much about glacier travel at the time we're pretty scared of falling down a crevasse and there's me pissing on my uh on my frame bindings. i was turning, I turning around like what are you doing tom why
0: are you having in. a piss at this time
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Got more, more important things to be doing. But like those are the things like there's it was funny, but yeah. also like it was scary. And those are the things that seem to to stand yeah, out for from sure. events like that. I
0: mean that's why newspapers publish a bunch of horrible stuff instead of lovely stuff.
1: Talking to you about getting out in the military, like where do you go with that? Like what's the like is that an exciting part of the journey? Is it um disorientating? Um I mean I left before I
0: resented it, um, I didn't want to get to the point where like I needed to be out in the next month. I was well, I was I was going to pull my hair out, so I left it a good time, and I knew I'd need a plan. So I was I always had a plan in the back of my mind, but it was it was still a little bit worrying, you know. I had a mortgage, and my whole point of leaving was so I could be self-employed and do what I wanted when I wanted. So it was probably about three years of doing rope access work here and there uh some some work offshore before i could finally build up enough contacts and and contracts and uh to be able to do this full-time you know mountain mountaineering and alpinism and base jumping and and working with brands as my full-time job so yeah the last two or three years uh, has pretty much solidly just been uh being that side of things mixed in with a few other little jobs that I want to do. Um, but it's, but I do them because I want to do them rather than, than I have to. Mm-hmm.
1: What's that process like of, cause you're essentially mm. starting a business at that point where you're thinking about I'm marketing myself, yeah. I'm doing sales, I'm producing content, I'm delivering mm. products in terms of videos and articles. Like what's the process like of that startup mentality for you?
0: Um, <clears throat> so I've I've seen other people do it before, uh, and the gift of the gab really helps, but I wanted what I do to speak for itself. So I wanted, you know, what I was doing to to really stand out and and that's not what I'm motivated by is, you know, is is making it work as a job. I'm motivated motivated by doing these things, these goals that will really challenge me. And most of these goals and ambitions are things that had never been done before, um, and they and they stood out in that way. Um, but yeah, it was. I, I never wanted to to be called a sellout or to see myself as a sellout. So there's there's you know definitely certain things I'll say no to and certain things I, I have to think carefully about. But, um, but yeah, it's it's worked out.
1: What are the two paths you're offered? Because like there's the the sellout path. What does that look like in terms of decisions you make? Is it like, okay, anything for a quick buck and like what are the opportunities? Yeah,
0: I I think selling out is when you have certain ethics or morals that can be bought. You know, if I was told, you know, uh, would you support this product for this amount of money? And previously I'd said you know that that brand is absolutely rubbish i'd never wear that and now i'm doing it because of because of a little bit of money then that's selling out in my eyes um
1: so yeah when do those opportunities start to present themselves to you because like i'm imagining there's a lot of people who are interested in doing the thing that you do or a similar version of it but don't get there or half-ass it along the way?
0: Yeah, I mean, they've, they've presented themselves to me even since when I was in the core, certain TV shows or um, certain brands or, or whatever it was. But um, it, it's not one of those things where you can just say, like, I want to do that for a living. You've, you've got to be living it already mm-hmm. to then, I think, jump in it on mm-hmm. any opportunities that come. Um, so I've got, yeah, you know, when people just say, "How do you get sponsored?" You can give a brief sort of outline of of how it works, but it's it's not a uh, a step by step guide of how to guarantee sponsorship.
1: Uh, yeah. Do you have a like? Um, so I'm I'm very unfamiliar with the world of base jumping, other than I know what it is. Like, do you have like a? I don't know, like a USP, like a unique selling point. Like people know Tim has mm. this kind of base jump, who does this. Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, I think my nicheness comes from combining alpinism and mountaineering with base jumping. So that's enabled me to, to access a lot of jumps that a lot of other people can't and really combine them to, to create these unique opportunities in, in you know, some high mountain ranges around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. got you what do actually there's so many places that i, I want to go for this like what's the price you pay for a lifestyle where you or for pursuing a yeah. career where it's your lifestyle at the same time and also one that is um in the mountains and outdoors and very unconventional
0: um so i think a lot of people straight off think uh you, you must be rich or have rich parents or been handed everything on a silver platter, but I mean, even even the example I gave earlier when during training in the Royal Marines, I'd I'd nip off for weekends. You know, I'd be using ration packs that I took from work. I'd be using sleeping bags that I took from work. I'd be sleeping in laybys, and to this day, you know how many ever years later that is. That's like twelve years later or more. It was my birthday the other day. I slept in a layby just so I could get up and do a jump the next morning so it's you know it's a lot of lot of sacrifice, but I don't look at it like sacrifice it's just it enables me to do what I do and if I save money on one trip by you know not sleeping in a the hotel it means I can go on another trip the next month um, and even learning to to skydive, I was fortunate where a lot of the skydives were compensated or I did a lot of military or skydiving on behalf of the Royal Marines. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would pack rigs for money that would then also fund my jump tickets. So it's not just given to to me on a silver platter. You know, it's all all, uh, hard work and dedication that gets you there in the end.
1: Yeah. When did you get the idea to climb and base jump all six of the great So
0: bases I I just app? started base jumping and I went to a famous um town called Lauterbrunnen um and a friend of mine this was this was during the same uh leave period that I met my wife to be Eva um and we
1: a profitable leave there. <laughs>
0: and we uh we went to climb the north face of the Eiger. Uh, with a friend of mine from school and when we were climbing it i could see the mushroom which is this detached pillar of rock from the from the north face and i thought well i could climb this and then i could jump it as well and i got thinking about the other six north faces of the alps and realized one by one they were all possible to jump so yeah it just became a seven year endeavor to to try and climb and jump them all
1: when did it become a serious thing? Where you're like, "This is something I'm doing." Was it at that moment?
0: Yeah, I think pretty shortly after that. I think I climbed two of the north faces in one year, and then they started slowing down. Um, so pretty much as soon as I was on the next one, I realized, you know, this is happening. I gotta, I've started this, this, um, <clears throat> this, uh, this idea, and now, now I'm definitely going to finish it sooner or later. When when was um, that? I had just finished a six month deployment, uh, and that I had two years left. So that was probably about eight eight years ago, um, eight or nine years ago I started. Okay. Uh, but I, I was still serving, so it was really hard to to try and find the time and the partners and the conditions. You know, if you have got two weeks leave given to you on these dates, and I keep my fingers crossed that they're the um mountain is going to be in condition for those two weeks then yeah you don't don't have a lot of flexibility
1: yeah it's a pretty big risk uh to or like not risk it's just like the 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 likelihood of things aligning is pretty small and then how does that lead to akankagwa
0: um so things just got bigger and bigger and um jumped mount kenya and was the first person to to jump in vietnam and the first person to jump in the uk um and then yeah i just really looked to to something bigger we we tried a an expedition to jump kilimanjaro um and uh, unfortunately the the weather wasn't on our side to jump it um but then i thought oh, i've done the six north faces is it possible to do the seven summits um so yeah kind of it's a way it's a lot less um it's a lot more looser it's just a a, you know see what happens sort of thing i'm definitely not dedicating all my time to try and jump the seven summits for for various reasons but um yeah
1: yeah Yeah, i get you so what's the process of Aconcagua like how how how'd you get there like what's the like hmm. the even the So
0: Aconcagua was like two or three years in the making mainly COVID and then finally the, it all, all opened up and they allowed uh, tourists in with a cheaper permit because they were trying to get people back after COVID so it kind of all made sense. Uh, we wanted to do a lesser known route um called the Polish Glacier so it's Took us about eight days to get to Camp Two on the Polish Glacier. A couple of days of hiking to base camp, then a rest day, then a climatization day, then to Camp One, then to Camp Two, um, and then we tried to summit uh, from Camp Two. But the the weather was pretty full on, pretty full on conditions. But the next day we woke up and we were running out of of supplies at this time, um, mainly food. We woke up and the, and the weather was absolutely perfect. Um, but we knew that if we pushed for a summit attempt, that we would have to come back down to the camp and we wouldn't have any food left. So we opted for um, jumping. So that would mean that the team, my wife and my friend Jimmy, could meet me back at base camp and I could could fly down um, and we'd be back at base camp with all the food that we needed. <laughs> um, so yeah, we we were camp two was only about 100 meters away from the exit point um and i wrecked it the day before so i knew exactly what to expect and where to fly and how to get to the exit point and all the measurements and landing options so so the day of the the jump it was it was good to go there wasn't that much to to worry about or think about the the weather was spot on so yeah it went really smoothly
1: What's different about jumping at that kind of altitude?
0: Uh, yeah, quite a, quite a bit of, of different, um, different things to think about. First of all, the the gear that you need, like what sort of kit do you jump down with? Because I landed on a glacier, so I'd need crampons and axes and gloves. Um, <clears throat> the altitude itself, there's 60% less oxygen at that altitude. So the wingsuit takes more time to inflate and pressurize. But also once it is flying, it flies a lot faster, so um, I didn't realize how fast I was flying, um, and I normally fly at about hundred and eighty kilometers an hour, and on this jump it was at 220 without even trying, like I thought I was just chilling in the sky but but it was it was fast when I looked back at the GPS data wow. so um, yeah, also just getting getting ready like. It was hard work at that altitude, just putting the gear on and bending over to clear the snow off the exit point. I was out of breath and and just really trying to get everything back down to, to be normal levels and normal breathing, ready to jump.
1: Yeah, I, I think I read somewhere that you kind of struggled finding the confidence at that moment. Um, I might have completely misread it. I might have found it from somewhere that wasn't there. Yeah, like, no, it, really it wasn't about?
0: so much confidence. It was. It might have been the phrase that my wife said, and she said, only jump if you're 100% sure. Um, and my wife was there on the exit point. Um, she didn't jump with me. But, you know, a lot of these times I I think about, you know, if everyone else is confident, um, it's it's nice to be able to wring ideas off other people, you know. And, and my wife, being experienced as well, um, she was she was pretty happy. And I think she's even said since, like, I didn't have to worry at all because everything checked up. It was like it was it was perfect for it. But um, she was like, yeah, you know, on, only jump if you're sure, and if you're sure, go for it. So yeah, it was all good.
1: Yeah, I know. You- you and your wife also jumped a lot. Is it different jumping with your wife there? For Not having a hundred percent. Very different. She's actually
0: stopped, uh, wingsuiting now, not after the accident, you know, well, it was years after the accident, but she kind of just fell out of love with it. And she always says that unless you're, you know really really involved in loving it every moment of it there's no point doing it because there's so much risk involved then then why would you do something that you're just doing for the sake of it um and it's definitely i felt a lot of relief since she's uh stopped jumping so i and we, and we spend more time in the mountains climbing now which is which is great mm.
1: nice A relief because you know that she's not exposing herself to that Yeah,
0: I mean, there are definitely some types of jumping that isn't sustainable. And I would never say that the sort of jumping she was doing isn't sustainable. But, well, I mean, to a degree, you're taking risks. So, you know, sooner or later, statistically, something can happen. But, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm, I'm happy she's not taking as much risk as she used to.
1: Yeah, there's. Um, have you read the book no, Staying Alive in Avalanche? I'll,
0: I'll write that down. Train?
1: I can't remember the author. Um, yes, yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's hmm. heavy and complex and scientific, but it's very good. And I think it's in the first chapter, and I can't remember the stats at all. But he's just giving the kind of, if you go out into avalanche terrain this so many times, this is when it gets to 100% certainty that you will be caught in an avalanche hmm. at some point. And it's not that much it's like it's less than you'd expect. You don't have to be born in the Alps and live in the Alps and spend go on however many um, adventures every single season to get in it. It's like it's fairly consistent and it's fairly kind of a low barrier. Yeah, so I'm maybe. guessing it's the similar kind of situation with, with base jumping where it's like you do a certain number of jumps and then something percentage-wise is guaranteed.
0: Yeah, and I don't know what number that is. And, you know, I've I've done a thousand jumps and mm-hmm. – Although I've had incidents, I've I've never injured myself. So, um, yeah, they're they're definitely.
1: So some people, some people do injure themselves very quickly, and some people get into horrendous situations. Like, without me, I don't believe in that either,
0: mate. So you can go for what you can tempt as much fate as you want.
1: (laughs) Okay, great, sweet. I'll I'll I'll, I'll tempt as much fate (laughs) as I want then. Um, why? why i like, down to
0: decision-making
1: like I don't feel the need to
0: uh, to push it that often so I, I did an event the other day where people were jumping 20 times a day and my friend and I were like yeah four cool did four jumps you know we flew halfway around the world and we did four jumps a day when people were doing 20 and I, ju- I just don't need to I feel the need to push it um I think I can, I can read myself quite well and, and know my abilities, which is really important. And, and my other background, you know, the military side of things and the climbing side of things definitely helps me uh, in terms of experience, you know, to really judge things um, in these risky environments.
1: Yeah. What makes a good decision?
0: The thing is although well, t- touching on it just now, just, um understanding yourself understanding why you're making the decision is it because of ego or lack of knowledge or you know have you got pressure for some reason that's that's really important i think that's a that's a big thing about it like why are you making that decision whether it's for or against um and then yeah really understanding is your experience you know are you just leaping into the deep end or have you built up that experience and now you can leap into the deep end because you've got, you know, everything from the shallow end to the deep end. You've got the whole length of the swimming pool of experience and not just straight in.
1: I really like that data point. There's um this entrepreneur who's providing a stupid amount of value to the um to the business world at the moment called Alex Hormosy. And he talks about building an undeniable stack of proof that you are who you say you are. And like that slightly relates to self-confidence, but also relates to decision-making. It's like, if you know that you've made this decision correctly a thousand times, that obviously goes some way to build Mm. the reference. I
0: I think there's something to be said about confidence as well. Like you need confidence, but why have you got that confidence? And knowing yourself, are you being overconfident? Because just confidence alone doesn't do much. You could be delusional and have all the, all the confidence in the world, that's not going to do it. You know, you need to be confident in your decision-making, but that needs to come from somewhere. Um, And I I would say that overconfidence kills, you know, it's uh, too much confidence in the wrong place is, is, uh, can be dangerous.
1: Do you have a, a journal or a notepad or a way of like tracking your jumps yeah. and successes, yeah and yeah, i love a good journal and things that you train um what does that look like well the things that you track what are the things that you like kind of have yeah
0: um so for base jumping it's it's more of a logbook than a than a journal uh, literally just like numbered one to mm-hmm. 1020 um mm-hmm. and every now and again i'll write something in it um that's important to that jump whether it was uh, an incident or something like that but to be honest I don't really need the logbook to remind me of those things they're normally so poignant um that I will remember them and, and learn from them you know just just like that jump seven years ago where I hit the cliff that was so poignant and um you know referenced the the dunning kruger model and and it's it stuck with me ever since
1: yeah so obviously that was a failure maybe like in in terms of how you operate your decisions
0: i I would blame my ego at that moment because there was quite a few people watching um pressure of people watching doing that sheep mentality you know just jumping because everyone else is and and doing these flips um and definitely overconfidence in my ability because i i used to be quite good on the trampoline and thinking yeah flips a flip it's fine i can rattle them off on my trampoline no dramas mm-hmm. and um so it was overconfidence in that respect because this is complete although the trampolining helps it's a completely different environment um you know so it was yeah overconfidence in that way as well.
1: what other failures have been like your best failures? I'm a big uh, proponent of the idea that like mm. failure is the thing that teaches you so like what other failures have been the most useful
0: yeah that that was definitely a failure that that helped um, there have been other ones smaller ones that have been more uh helpful in terms of really technical types of of wingsuiting and base jumping but i also think that sorry i'd forgotten where i was going with that yeah a lot lots of small little things of, of failure um that just helps me improve where where i'm taking my wingsuiting and i i think almost every single jump i'll learn something from whether it's the smallest thing um or something that could potentially save my life like there's and even even jumping with other people i can learn from them um and and pass on that knowledge because it might not be a mistake that i would make but teaching base jumping as well it's something that i can pass on to students because they might make that mistake
1: what are the small things that are the big things in base jumping like i'm sure there's kind of little details um there's this example of um in Vietnam they f- they figured out that things went downhill with discipline as soon as blokes stopped shaving because it was a small mm. thing that led on to a big thing. It's like what are the equivalents in mm. base jumping? Yeah,
0: that's interesting. I think attitude is a lot to play. Um especially when you when you get more and more into it and more technical. Um just little like almost little phrases and little ways about how people are acting makes me think I don't want to jump with them because they would potentially be the sort of thing that could lead on to an incident. And I don't want to be around that. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite, quite fortunate in that way. I I haven't been around too many serious base jumping incidents. Um, because you know, I, I don't jump with that many different people and the people I do jump with, I really trust.
1: Yeah, You said in, I think, I can't remember if I heard it or read it, you said something along the lines of, there's no one saying you shouldn't be doing that because mm. you don't have the right sticker in your logbook. Um, what do you, like, why is so that so important? Skydiving
0: is, is really, things? really controlled. It's really regulated. There's governing bodies all around the world. Um. And most of those rules come down to the lowest common denominator. So if a guy is only able to do something with 500 jumps of experience, they'll say, you need that sticker in your logbook to be able to wingsuit or whatever it is. Whereas base jumping, it comes down to very much like mountaineering and alpinism. It comes down to your to your own ability and your own judgment. And you know, if, if you're not capable of doing it, the the results can be really really risky and detrimental. Um, so it's again down to yourself being true with yourself. Am I ready for this? Can I do it? Because at the end of the day, there's no one telling me I can't. It's just down to um, whether I have enough self awareness that I'm going to outlive it. So it's uh, yeah, it's all down to decision making. You gotta you gotta get it right.
1: yeah yeah interesting stuff what's your next objective or so there's uh
0: quite a few other countries that um that i've got my eye on that i want to do the first wingsuit jump um this year has been a lot about climbing and getting stronger and fitter so i want to just push my grade a little bit um and then back back to the bigger mountains next year hopefully with with hopefully uh yeah really really big objective um yeah out in out in the big mountains nice
1: sweet do you know what that is yeah keep keeping, keeping
0: that a little bit open. open for now um nailing down the the uh ins and outs of it but um yeah fingers crossed
1: and is there anything that you just won't do is there anything you're like that is um, an unnecessary? I mean, risk. the
0: general grand scheme of things. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's quite a few things I won't do, but um, like mm-hmm. I think there's, there's quite a few people who set themselves rules in base jumping. <clears throat> they say I will never do that sort of jump, or I'll never do that sort of jump, mm-hmm. and I I don't have any things like that because I think if you train hard enough for it and um are capable of, of pulling it off then you can mitigate the risk i think repeating it again and again is a different matter because then again that might become less sustainable um but no there's there's nothing that comes to mind that says you know i, I will not do that um
1: okay. and then this is the most newbie question yeah, exactly. um, so i saved the last where i can always cut it out if i don't want it in there <laughs> talk to me about oh that always comes up helmet while space jumping um is it cuz no, you just have all. it with you no no because it's you're it's climbing landing up or is it something else
0: yeah yeah and i okay. i know i've put so a dent in a helmet uh, from landing Sweet. fell over and then there was a boulder right in front of me and i just headbutt the boulder um friends of mine have definitely been saved by by helmets yeah. um the the joke is that you need a helmet to carry a camera but uh, it's, it, it's a lot more than that as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. Um, where can people find out more about you? Where can people follow your work? Yeah, so
0: most um, of my videos, videos are on my Facebook page, uh, Tim Howard Venture. And then same for Instagram. Uh, and then my, my website as well, timhowardventure.com, which is mainly just just articles and, and thinking in depth about yeah you know, certain certain issues and th- certain uh, trips and stuff. So, yeah. Thank you very much, Tom. Cheers for having Thank me. Thank you so much for joining me.